You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome back to the MLB.com StatCast podcast. I'm your host, Mike Petriello, joined here by MLB.com National Editor Matt Myers. And it is our first podcast of the offseason. I think the last time we talked was directly before Game 1 of the World Series, where we had hoped we would have an exciting and interesting World Series. And I don't know, I would say it lived up to that. And then some, would you agree? Uh, yes, it was. Although Game 7 was a little bit of a, a letdown on the excitement meter, uh, everything leading up to that will exceeded expectations so I think it, it balanced out and it definitely was in the conversation for uh most exciting world series that I've ever seen I was I was fortunate enough to uh be at the first two games in Los Angeles and uh in addition to it being extremely hot 103 degrees the first day uh it was just it was a lot of fun to watch in person especially game two which was the nuttiest game I'd ever seen only up until we saw game five so as we know uh, the Astros walk away from the 2017 World Series as the champions. And we want to just do a little bit of wrap-up on the World Series because it was really fascinating. And look ahead a little bit to free agency, which I can't believe starts almost like right now. It, it's amazing to think that we're already looking ahead to 2018 already. But as far as the World Series goes, I think, you know, a couple of stories out of the World Series. Part of it was, uh, you know, as we talked about, just the excitement. And, uh, you know, as as my wife was shocked to learn, you can actually quantify excitement. You can do this. You can look at win probability, which basically looks at... The, uh, the the change in expected win outcome from play to play. It's a good way. A lot of our stats are context-free. We don't really look at game situation, but this one is. You know, a, a home run in the first inning uh, when you're you know tied at 0-0 is different from a home run to win the game in the ninth is different from a home run when it's a 10-0 blowout. So this is a great way to put these games in the actual context. And we saw two games in this World Series, Game 2 and Game 5. They were the only World Series games ever that have five different plays that changed the outcome of the game by at least 25% which is nutty when you think about it. Like that that doesn't happen and then in the entire history of the World Series it happened twice in the span of like 4 days. Yeah, and the, the the play that had if I'm not mistaken the play that had the highest win probability swing is a game that's going to be is a moment that's going to be completely lost to history which was Kike Hernandez game tying single in game 2 I guess off Giles. I saw that list and I, and ex- you're exactly right. I was like, yeah, wait, I kind of remember that, right? <laughs> like there's so was, much that happened. It was off Giles and it was yeah. like a, it was a crazy play in its own right because Hernandez uh, is a pretty strong pull hitter, and he was facing a right-handed hitter, a right-handed pitcher, and he can't hit right-handed pitching. And of course, he hits like a ground ball perfectly towards where second base would be, like traditionally be positioned for a clean single to tie the game. But then, of course, the the Astros went on to hit like four more home runs and extra innings of that game, and it was completely washed away. And there's another way to quantify this too. So you look at, at win percentage added or win probability added WPA, and that's within the context of a single game. But if you change what you're looking at, you can look at a stat that's known as championship WPA, which means it's not about how much did you do with that play to increase your odds of winning that game to winning the entire World Series. And obviously that that changes a lot. Uh, This was the ninth highest World Series of all time in terms of championship win, win probability added. And if you look at some of the ones ahead of them, they're exactly the ones you'd expect. There's some classics here. You know, 91, Minnesota, Atlanta goes seven games. 97, Florida and Cleveland go seven games. Uh, just a couple years ago, the, the Texas-St. Louis 2011 series was wild. And then going all the way back to 1975, Reds and Red Sox. I mean, that's like, you know, the Carlton Fisk game. So uh, this really stacks up with some of the all-time greats. You can also look at it as an average championship WPA per plate appearance, just like how much does plate appearance matter. And this was the seventh highest 
World Series of all time by that metric. And I, I think that's really interesting. That just goes to show, even with Game 7 not really living up to, like, excitement expectations, overall, this was, you can say this is, like, the craziest World Series that you've seen and not really be, like, completely out of your mind about it. I mean, I think on a standalone basis, Game 5 was the craziest World Series game I've ever seen. However, Game 6 of 2011, the Nelson Cruz-David Freeze game is elevated above it in my mind because it was an elimination game. Right. Like, like one of the teams could have, you know, if Texas had won, the Cardinals were out. Yes. That, so in this series, the, the one thing that sort of like hurts it is that none of the elimination games were great. Game six and seven might've been the two least exciting games of the series. I mean, that's true. And game seven was great, even though it, it you know, ended on a four, three ground out from uh, Corey Seager over to Jose Altuve. Let's take a second and just remember how cool that sounded. Here's a ground ball right side. Could do it. The Houston Astros are world champions for the first time in franchise history. So congratulations to the Astros. I think obviously everybody in the world by now knows the story. They were on the cover of of Sports Illustrated in 2014 saying they'd be the 2017 World Series champions. Uh, I do wonder how differently that would look now if they had said the exact same prediction, but it wasn't George Springer on the cover. You know, it was like Brett Oberholzer or John Singleton or something like that. I think that'd be an interesting alternate universe, Uh, but it worked out for them because George Springer was fantastic. We'll get to him in a second. One of the stories I think of this World Series quite obviously was the home runs, right? As it's been all season long. There were a record 25 home runs hit in the World Series, and I think there's a lot of different reasons for that. Partially, these are just two very, very good offenses, probably the two best in baseball. Um, We also saw that the somewhat overused relievers kind of led to some meatballs right down the middle for some of these home runs. But what I find the most interesting is we saw this series really being played in three different ballparks, right? We saw game one and two in LA. It was extremely hot. And I think we talked about this last week, how we expected that the temperature would lead to some home runs. And it did Uh, games three to five in Houston. Obviously the short left field porch turned some easy pop-ups into home runs. And then six and seven LA, it was, you know, normal-ish as normal as, as it gets. And um, I thought this was interesting of the 25 home runs we saw, Five of them had a hit probability of under 25%, which is really interesting. And you can see exactly why. Like Carlos Correa, for example, in game five, had a ball that was 48 degrees of launch angle, right? And what do we ended up looking at? That was the highest hit home run of the year? Or of 2017, uh, regular season and postseason, and also the highest, not surprisingly, in the postseason we've seen in the three years of, of StatCast. Yeah, 48 degrees. I mean, we basically consider anything above 50 degrees a pop-up, right? I mean, pop-ups are never, ever out, are never hits. They're strikeouts. Um, but that went into the short left field in uh, Houston, so 11% hit probability. We saw Turner get one in game one, a 13% hit probability, 103 degrees. Obviously, that helped that ball. It wasn't hit that hard, you know, 96 miles an hour. Um, in game four, Alex Bregman hit one only 93 miles an hour. That got out because he hit it into the Crawford boxes. And then also in uh, game two, it was still 93 degrees. We saw Peterson hit one, 97 degrees, 22%. My favorite, I think, was actually Puig's in the wild game five because if you remember the way he hit it, it didn't look good, right? Just visually, it did not look like a solid swing. He still got 96 miles an hour on it, so that's great. Uh, but it also, it only went 349 feet. That ball's a home run 2% of the time. It's a hit 33% of the time, but it almost never goes out. It's really interesting to see how the ballpark, how the environment made some of these home runs happen. Like my favorite fact of the, ser- of the series in that game five was um, Guriel hit a double to deep left center off the wall that went 400 feet. In that game, there were five home runs hit that didn't go as far as Gurriel's <laughs> double. That like tells you just how weird. You know, we've talked a lot this season on this podcast about the weirdness of Minute Maid Park, and in this series, it totally lived up to um, that that reputation that we've sort of been building up for because it had all these kind of quote unquote cheap cheap home runs. Although, almost thing is, you do see a fair amount to right field uh, at Minute Maid Park as well, but in this series, it was almost exclusively the. Uh, 
the left field of the left field Crawford box variety. Yeah, and it's really this is why we like getting to these stats, um, like expected weighted on base. They're about quality of contact, right? Because it's what happened at the moment the ball hit the bat. Because the beauty of baseball is there's so many different ballparks, there's so many different environments that a lot of things can happen. The outcome doesn't necessarily lend itself directly to the skill that went into it, you know, because you can't control the ballpark, you can't control the defense. All you can control as a hitter is how hard you hit the ball, what angle, and what direction. And that's that's unlike any other sport, I think. Yeah, I do think I wonder about parks like Minute Maid and Fenway in particular, where there's some glaring feature that like I think that hitters can adjust their swings to try and like we're like i mean i think when i think of fenway park i think of left-handed hitters sort of like basically trying to hit you know fly ball like trying to like go the other way with like kind of routine fly balls to left knowing that that is often a double and i think that you probably kind of do some of the same in the crawford boxes i think most parks hitters aren't doing that because there's nothing that's like so obvious like oh if i just like adjust my swing a little bit i can get some sort of like cheap extra base hit but i do think that the that that in certain parks, you might get that. And it's hard. It's one of those things that's really hard to quantify. So the MVP of the series was George Springer. And uh, I think it's pretty funny because he was pretty lousy leading up to the World Series. He did not have a strong postseason leading up to the World Series. He was like 3 for 26 in the ALCS. Yeah. And then then in game one of the World Series, 0 for 4 with four strikeouts. I actually, I was seeing Astros fans on Twitter wanting him to be benched, which is nutty and i get it but still and then what it's, do you... it's particularly nutty when you consider that the astros basically had no bench in this right <laughs> we're gonna do start cameron maven in center field <laughs> Derek fisher you know had like one interesting moment did we actually make it through the whole series of that Juan centennial appearing he never appeared i don't yeah so that he, he had like one plate appearance the entire postseason so Springer starts off 0 for 4 with four strikeouts in game one, and then 11 for 25, three doubles, five home runs. This is maybe my favorite stat of the entire postseason. Of those 25 post-game one plate appearances, he had 17 hard-hit balls, which we quantify as 95 miles an hour or above. 17 for 25. That's not 17 for 25 batted balls. That's 17 for 25 times just stepping to the plate which is insane. Uh, he also had the two longest and hardest hit home runs of the record 25. We saw in game three, he hit 110.3 miles an hour, 438 feet. And then in game seven, this was really the dagger. And this is this is where you knew you Darvish was probably should have been out two batters earlier. Uh, 111.9 miles an hour, 448 feet off the bat. Let's take a minute to listen to what that sounded like. Here comes the 3-2. And George drills this one deep to left center field. You can kiss that one goodbye. A two-run home run for George Springer. And the Astros lead it 5 to nothing. Springer homers for the fourth straight game. So Dave Roberts, I think, got some heat for not bringing in Morrow for that situation, which in retrospect, I guess I agree with. I mean, it just seemed like there was no way that was going to work out. Darvish looked terrible. Springer was red hot. That that maybe was I don't care about you know Rich Hill in game two I thought that was the right call I thought Roberts did a good job that's probably the one maybe I differ with him on. yeah the the thing about the Darvish is like you know in the first inning he definitely got a little bit of a raw deal because he gave up that double to Springer to lead it off but then like it was a, a slow roller at first Bellinger made a bad play on he should have let Forsyth field it and throw to first instead he fielded it and you know being a lefty he tried to open up his body made an awkward throw. Bregman safe gets the second, steals third, so it's like two nothing. But then it's two nothing before you know it. But there's only really one hit, hard hit ball uh, of the inning. That said, it was pretty clear Darvish was not missing bats. Uh, in game two, he had one swing and a miss. In game seven, he had, I think it was two, but one of them was a bunt. Right. So he really had only one one swing strike, and his location wasn't great. It just after you can che- if you want to check our internal slack slack just discussion after Marwin's double in the second i said darvish needs to be out of this game and uh so that was that was a first guess and roberts that was probably uh he had a few um 
weird decisions. He had some. I thought a lot of times, to your point, he was excellent with his quick hook with the starting pitchers, and I agreed with him. He had a few odd choices. Kike Hernandez bunting uh, in oh game five was was bizarre. With, with Justin Turner on second, and who was playing DH that day because he'd hurt his leg. That was bad, but the sticking with Darvish too long in Game Seven when you know you have the full pen, including Clayton Kershaw and Alex Wood ready to come in, that was uh, that was his biggest sin, managerial sin as far as I'm concerned. It bit him because he kept him in for Springer and he absolutely obliterated the pitch. Yeah, and we'll get to free agency in a second. I'm not one that really believes that a game or two in the postseason is going to significantly change the contract a guy like Darvish is going to get, but. These were two really bad starts, and he talked a little bit about how you know the ball didn't feel right to him. Maybe there was something to do with he was tipping his pitches. That came up afterwards. I, I don't have a good answer for why this happened. Well, it was, I mean, it was interesting because his last start with Texas, if it's, if you, he, he wasn't great with Texas here. In his last start, the Marlins beat the Rangers like 22 to 10. He, he gave up 10 runs, I think. He, and uh, after the game, he basically said, yeah, I realize I've been tipping my pitches. I'm pausing when I throw my fastball, I'm pausing with my leg kick when I throw my fastball, and I'm not doing it when I'm throwing my breaking ball, and like I need something I need to address. And he pitched well with the Dodgers. If that was an issue, he seemed to have addressed it. But in Game 7 postgame, Carlos Beltran said that he had told his teammates, hey, Darvish is tipping his pitches. Here's I don't know if, he, I don't know if, if Darvish's quote-unquote tell was the same as what it had been in July, but this had been a storyline for Darvish this year. And Beltran on the boats came, Joe, was interesting because he was saying, you know, Beltran, a pretty modest guy, was basically trying not to take too much credit. He was basically saying, I noticed this, but, you know, a lot of hitters don't like that information because they don't think they can do anything with it. So it's almost like, don't tell me this because it's going to cloud cloud my head. Um, but it's possible that, that Springer, who hit two absolute rockets off Darvish, uh, was using this information, and maybe Marwin Gonzalez, too, who rocket, uh, hit a hard double into, uh, into right center as yeah, well. It wouldn't surprise me at all that Darvish, as you said, was very good uh, with the Dodgers. Before that, he gave up one run, I believe, in each of his two postseason starts before the World Series. So to see this happen, obviously the Astros are an elite offense. That was kind of shocking. Um, Springer, by the way, tied for the sixth highest WPA win probability added in a World Series of all time. You will not be surprised to see that Madison Bumgarner in 2014 is on that list, Jack Morris in 1991, and um, tied for the 10th highest championship WP added in World Series of all time, despite going 0 for 4 in Game 1. One thing that's interesting about uh, Springer in the context of the Astros, and obviously I think, you know, Jeff Luna, the GM, and his whole front office um, deserve all the credit in the world for many of the moves that they've made. Um, But it is interesting that, and this sort of gets lost a little bit in the discussion, is that arguably their two best players this year, Springer and Altuve, both homegrown, both predate the Lunau uh, administration. And that's true for Keuchel as well, isn't it? Right? Um, yeah. He yeah. was drafted in like 2008 or nine. I can't remember which one it is. But, um, you know, Springer, like, Springer was particularly interesting because Springer was drafted in June of 2011, Lunau hired that December. So he basically was like just in before. So, you know, um, Ed Wade uh, and Tipper Pura before him, you know, got sort of a bit of a bit of a, bit of a laughing laughing stock with their their Houston Houston regime, but they definitely got some things right, and they definitely left Luno. The, the cupboard was not bare when Luno came over. Basically, three superstars in waiting, and 
you know, they helped develop Luno and his team helped develop those guys, but the talent was obviously there. Yeah, and it's somewhat similar for the Dodgers. Obviously, they didn't start with 100 lost seasons when the quote-unquote nerds came in. They'd won two division titles, but, you know, Seager was in the minor leagues, Bellinger was in the minor leagues, Kershaw was already there. Uh, so they made a lot of moves, but as you said, they didn't come in and starting from scratch. Before we move on from the World Series, I do want to talk about what I found maybe to be the most interesting moment of the World Series. In Game 7, you know, Lance McCullers starts, and he only went two and a third inning, and he set a postseason record by hitting four batters, right? He faced 13 hitters, hit four of them, gave up six batted balls at 95 miles an hour or harder. Uh, Three of those had a 65% hit probability or more. To be fair, he did strike out three. He made Cody Bellinger look foolish on curveballs twice, and he he got Seager once as well. But two and a third innings, no runs, and... That would be what you would consider dealing, right? I mean, but I'm saying the outcome is dealing. You don't pull a guy in that situation, usually. Usually you do not. So he got pulled, and I found this really interesting. This has never happened before. This exact situation has never happened before in World Series history. There have been 659 World Series games before Game 7. So, obviously, there's two different starters per game. That's over 1,300 previous World Series starts. Only three times before had a starter been pulled without any runs allowed before three innings were up. Now, two of them were injuries. In 2003, David Wells came out of Game 5 because he'd hurt his back. In 1988, John Tudor came out of Game 2 because he'd hurt his elbow. And in 1924, there was a gimmick that was way ahead of its time that I'd actually love to see somebody try this again. Uh, The Washington Senators in Game 7 started right-handed pitcher Curly Ogden and gave him two batters before removing him for a lefty because they wanted to remove the platoon advantage from the other side, which I love that, by the way. That's fantastic. The Pirates and Jimmy Leland did that in the NLCS in like 1990 with like, uh, I want to say like Bob Walk and Zane Smith. I may be getting the name slightly off, but they, they, they did that, that, that gambit. That was almost 100 years ago. I want to see that happen again. The point being, the only three previous times a pitcher had been pulled starting a World Series game without allowing a run before three innings were a platoon gimmick or two injuries. This doesn't ever happen. For like the entirety of World Series history, you leave that guy in until he gives up a run. But A.J. Hinge didn't do that. He came out and got him. And I think that changes the World Series right there. This was interesting to me for a few reasons, one of which was, and this speaks to their confidence in having... Um, McCullers and how lost they thought Clay Bellinger was, or sorry, Cody Bellinger was, is that they they let McCullers face Bellinger, strike him out on three breaking balls, basically at his back foot, and then took him out. Right. Basically, like we know that we we were completely confident he's going to strike out Bellinger, and then we're going to take him out. That was almost the weirdest part about it was that they let him face a guy, dominate him, and then take him out. I guess it was who came in. It was Peacock. That came uh, I believe it was Peacock. Yeah. Who came in to face who? Who bats after Bellinger? Uh, I can't even remember at this point. Peterson, maybe. I don't know. Yeah, but whatever. That to me, to me, that was that that was that was fascinating. What also was fascinating was that post game, McCullers was pretty candid, saying like, "Yeah, I told him the day before, I didn't think I had much in me," which is interesting because he he was on full rest. He was on full rest, but you know, it's been a long season. Obviously, it's yeah. November. Uh, he looked only okay in his previous start. That's true. I think by comparison to you, Darvish, he looked great, but he yeah. only had looked okay. Uh, and then AJ Hinch was quoted after the game saying, "You know, I didn't really plan on pulling him this early, but." He was spraying his fastball over the place. Obviously, he hit for it. He didn't look good at all. Well, no, with the exception of his, with the exception of getting Bellinger to swing and miss like eight times. In right. Two <laughs> well, there's that. But, but I, I that, think I mean, yeah, you terrible. make a great point, right? Because it was clear to me like two batters earlier, like this guy's done. You can't leave him in. But they left him in specifically to throw curveballs to Cody Bellinger, and it worked out wonderfully. And I really think in so many other situations, a manager probably leaves the guy in because he's not allowed to run. And, you know, all these hard hit balls are not always going to turn in outs. You know, he had uh, he loaded the bases in the first inning and he got, a, I think, a double play. It, it, this, this is not really the normal way that you approach these things. And I, I thought that was a, a big turning point. Oh, yeah. And I mean, they definitely got lucky. I think it was it was the second inning. First inning it was a... A hard ground ball hit right at Altuve. Right. Into the Second inning was the second inning was the line drive right at Correa. Rushed. 
like perfectly hit right M and doubled. I guess it was Forsyth. I think. I think doubled, it was good, doubled off, and that was that was like that was when it was like you know what this doesn't feel like the Dodgers. Yeah. Day. Well, I mean that's true, but it's a, an interesting way I think to look at um, process over outcome. Because if you leave him in, maybe he gives up runs. Maybe that game gets lost. Yeah. One one sort of cool tidbit that um, was brought to my attention by um, Zach Kreiser, one of our uh, works on our alerts team, and Jason Catania, who, who mentioned this, is that the. Um, the Astros a few years ago were one of the teams, and this was part of like when they were still kind of being mocked for being forward thinking, had aggressively implemented tandem starters at all levels of the minors. A lot of teams over the last 10, 15 years have done it like in the in, in low A and maybe high A because they want they have like, you know, 10 guys they're trying to develop as starting pitchers, but not enough starts to go around. And for those who aren't unfamiliar, tandem starters basically means we're going to cap you at like 75 pitches. We'll have one starter throw the first four innings, another guy come in, and then we'll use true relievers after that. Um, and the Astros in 2013 and 14 did this at all levels of their system. And it's interesting in the sense that like this postseason in particular, particularly in the world series, once they lost faith in Giles and Davidsky, and they were basically using all their starters as relievers, a lot of the guys had actually been through that before and had some experience doing it. You know, like McCullers famously was the first example in this postseason in game seven of the ALCS came in, in like the sixth and threw four innings to close it out for Morton. McCullers was in the system in 2013. He'd done this many times. Brad Peacock, same thing. And while I'm not necessarily saying there's like a direct correlation, it's interesting that like this quote-unquote controversial like method they'd implemented, because they were doing it even at AAA in 13 and 14, um, sort of manifested itself in the World Series, and they, they executed it perfectly. Yeah, I think this is the, the future of quote-unquote bullpenning. <clears throat> I think if there was one failure uh, on the LA side, it was that Roberts was too heavily reliant on Jansen, Morrow, and Kentameda. Like, Josh Fields basically didn't appear all postseason. McCarthy, Ross Chilping. I mean, these are not elite guys, but they're talented guys. And I think, you know, you need to have some more faith in some of these guys in situations. Like, you don't need Kurt, you don't need Jansen to nail down a four-run lead. You know, if you if you can't trust these guys, then the other guys get overworked. And I really like exactly what you said that the Astros did here. And um, I think they're well-positioned to keep doing that. And then, you know, baseball's a copycat sport. Some other team is going to try this, and I think it's going to be really interesting. And then the only other thing I think is interesting uh, as far as, as what the Astros did is that, uh, you know, their offense this year was elite. We talked about this for a lot of different reasons. They also had this enormous drop in strikeout rate. I think they dropped from like 24% last year to 17% this year. And I, I don't necessarily think that that specifically leads to success, right? I mean, I know people like to talk about that with the Royals. But what I do wonder is, since the way the game has changed to really be more home run focused, right, it's a lot easier to hit a home run than it used to be. Will teams just try to get more contact because you figure anytime you can put the bat on the ball, you're more likely to get success out of it than you were in the past? I don't know. It's interesting, I think, thread for this offseason to come. I think it would certainly be something that, uh, from a uh, aesthetic standpoint, would be welcome. Yes, uh, I agree with that, for sure. So they, if people want to cop- can manage to copycat the... Uh, the uh, Astros formula of more dingers, less strikeouts, like by all means. <laughs> Absolutely. So that's it for the World Series. Uh, that was a total blast. I enjoyed that. And really, the whole season was a lot of fun. And it is amazing that we are already looking forward to next year. Our free agents, 149 players became free agents. There'll be a couple more as options are and are not exercised. And free agents can sign as of 5 p.m. Eastern on Monday, November 6th. They could sign with new teams. As in, they could, if they, Between now and Monday, they can sign. We've, already, sign. we've already seen Justin Upton, yeah, exactly. at a year. So they can sign with new teams as of Monday. And um, we know we're going to talk a lot, obviously, over the next couple months about you know who's good to fit where, what teams need what. But what we want to do right away is just kind of look at what skills are available on the market. You know, if you are looking for a throwing arm, if you're looking for a fast runner, well, we can kind of do that better this year than we've ever been able to do with StatCast. So we've got a couple categories here uh, that we want to go through, and I think this will be kind of interesting to get a a read on what the market's going to be. 
So, for example, if you are a team and you're simply looking for quality of contact, like who is the most productive hitter, um, obviously we use expected weighted on base that accounts for quality of contact with launch angle and exit velocity, and also it does use strikeouts and walks. I think the biggest name is probably going to be Eric Hosmer, right? He's probably going to be the one that everybody thinks about, but he's not the best hitter as far as I'm concerned. That's J.D. Martinez. And I think a lot of people saw what he did after he went to Arizona where he went totally nuts and said, wow, you know, where did this guy come from? That's pretty false. He's been a great hitter for the last couple of years. Uh, his quality of contact this year, he had a 423 expected weighted on base. The league average is like 320. Uh, but even over the last three seasons, his expected weighted on base was 402. I mean, this is a guy, you know, he's not a strong outfielder, but he's been an elite hitter for some time now. Yeah, and you and you mentioned uh, Upton sort of extent, instead of opting out of his contract with the um, with the Angels, he essentially signed a new contract. As you know, now he's a five-year deal uh, to stay in, uh, stay in Anaheim. And that's, the biggest winner there might actually be J.D. Martinez is because if Upton's on the market, their profiles are very similar. Left fielders, right-handed hitters, not much defensive value, but they can mash. And now, like, Upton was going to be out there. There was going to be kind of two options so teams could sort of play them against each other. But now, like, if you're looking for a right-handed power bat, he's the guy. Yeah, and, you know, I hate to, like, look at the most op- most obvious fit and then think that'll happen because it never happens, but it really seems obvious he's going to end up with the Red Sox. They hit no home runs this year. Uh, Dombrowski obviously knows him well from Detroit. I mean, that just seems like the most obvious fit. Yeah, but I think they'd have to move an outfielder. And I know uh, John Paul Morosi's talked about how they could trade Jackie Bradley Jr., which, you know, certainly I think of their outfielders, he's the guy they'd be most likely to be willing to trade. But I don't necessarily think they'd bring in Martinez just to be DH. Not just to be DH, but I, I think you could split time between DH if you think Hanley can play some first base. Um, for starting pitchers, the same exact thing. Who is the best starting pitcher with the quality, uh, lowest quality of contact? And there's some interesting starters in this year's market. Uh, you Darvish, if you're just looking at 2017, of the free agents, you Darvish had a 291 expected weighted on base, which is very, very good. Now, if you obviously want more sample size over the last three years, it's Jake Arrieta, a 277 expected weighted on base. But that gets a little interesting because that includes his unbelievable year in 2015. And if you look at Arietta for the last couple of years, ERA has gone up from 177 to 310 to 353, expected weighted on base from 242, which is wild, to 293 to 301. So you're obviously going to look at more than just 2017, but I, I think Arietta is going to be maybe the most interesting case because I think he's going to be looking for a massive deal, but he's also a guy, he's, he's over 30, he's kind of going the wrong way. I don't really know how that's going to end up. Yeah, I'm not, I would be very wary. There's a lot of like sort of lower, you know, sort of second tier, arm, quote unquote, second tier arms I'd much rather sort of take a chance on than Jake Arietta. Uh, for relievers, I think this one's really interesting. You think about relievers in the market this year, you think Wade Davis, you think Greg Holland, right? Pat Neshek. Pat Neshek had a 216 expected weighted on base. Now, he made the all-star team this year. He's not a total nobody. Uh, and then over the last three years, also Pat Neshek, 250 expected weighted on base. Now, let's be totally fair here. He's 37, doesn't throw all that hard. He is not going to get a bigger contract than these other guys like Davis and Holland. But I find it really interesting that if you actually look, you know, Beyond the eye test and what's actually happened, Nishik has been fantastic for several years now. And for sure, no, Nishik has had a great career. Well, it's also fair to to note that he's a, he's more of a situational reliever, so he's put in more often to like for sure. in positions to succeed, where he's put it up against righties that the manager knows he has a very good chance of retiring. Whereas like guys like uh, Holland and Davis are put in to start innings, usually the ninth, 
regardless of who's coming up. Sometimes to their benefit, but often it's like the heart of the order, lefties, righties, what have you. 100% true. Uh, a couple other names to watch for relievers. Brandon Morrow obviously had a great year for the Dodgers, 240 expected weighted on base. And Mike Miner for the Royals. Uh, we'll get back to him in a second. A 238 expected weighted base. I think he's going to have a really interesting market uh, as a former starter. For outfield range, if you're looking for outfield defense, there's not a ton of great options out here. Uh, the big name, Lorenzo Kane. I think that makes sense. This is where the eye test and the metrics align pretty well. He had a plus 15 mark for outs above average this year. I think that was tied for sixth overall over the last two seasons, uh, plus 27 outs above average. Really, the only other good option here is, is Drad Dyson, who was plus seven, even though he kind of missed part of the season. This is really, it's an outfield market full of kind of the older hittery types like J.D. Martinez, Granderson, Melky Cabrera, etc. So if you're looking for defense, I think these are really the only two places you can possibly look. It really seems obvious that Kane's going to go to the Giants or the Mets or somebody like that, right? Um, both those teams seem like very, very good fits for him. Just they, they're likely to be spenders in free agency, and they could use outfield defense. And you know, he sort of he'll have, there will be a, there will be a good market for him. Yeah, I think he. Well, I was going to say he might do the best out of all the Royals, but that's probably not true. Hosmer probably gets. Um, Hosmer can do the best. I say he'll be the best value of all those Royals. We'll say that. I can see that. Uh, foot speed's a really interesting one. We use sprint speed to measure our our fastest runners uh where 27 feet per second is the league average and 30 feet per second is elite rajay davis still still and we talked a lot when we first put out sprint speed that's uh, speed peaks early and it declines and that's true but there are outliers rajay davis 29.2 feet per second essentially this is a tie with kane who was 29.1 and peter burgos who was 29 even but rajay davis 36 years old had 29 stolen bases it was his 11th straight year with 18 stolen bases I mean, you can't be this fast forever, certainly, but I mean, this is still elite skill right here. He's going to find a job with somebody as their fourth outfielder, and they'll be very happy to have him. Good for him. Uh, If you want an outfield throwing arm, uh, Carlos Gonzalez this year. Now, 94.8 miles per hour, that's on the average of his maximum effort throws. If we're going to go back and look at the last three years, it's Carlos Gomez, 95.9. Even this year, he was one of only seven outfielders who had a throw track at 100 miles an hour. Carlos Gonzalez had a pretty disappointing year by his standards. I think we both joked multiple times that a one-year $10 million deal in Baltimore is just like the most obvious contract that could ever happen. Um, but it does look like the throwing arm is at least still intact, and he was a better hitter as the season ended. For sure. What I really like using the StatCast for is looking at undervalued batters and undervalued pitchers. And here's a pair of names that will either make me look like an absolute genius or people will like refer to this forever as this guy doesn't know what he's talking about. Because well, these are just the, you're just giving the numbers. I'm just giving the numbers. Here's what, Let me explain how we got to these. Uh, you can look at expected weighted on base, and that's just quality of contact, right? It's what would have been expected to happen based on the amount of contact and the quality of contact. And then when you compare that to what actually happened, you can sort of get to, you know, fortunate outcomes. Obviously, foot speed comes into this a little bit uh, and ballpark effects for sure. So when I look at an undervalued batter, and remember the league average is about a 320, I see a guy who had an expected weighted on base of 321 and an actual weighted on base of 274, which to be fair is brutal. That's Hyunsu Kim, who uh, was with the Orioles and was very good in his debut in 2016 at a 382 on base and a 422 slugging. Last year, 307 on base, 292 slugging, got traded in that weird deal to the Phillies where he was just nailed to the bench uh, behind everybody. So he uh, he's a free agent. He's gone back uh, home, but he has said he wants to play in Major League Baseball next year. He had a 36% hard hit rate both years. Last year, his percentage of batted balls that were fly balls and line drives actually went up. It was uh, it was 38, and now it, then it was 43. I mean, that 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 oh, those are good signs. I know the outcomes weren't there. But as a platoon outfield bat, you can I mean, do worse. emphasis on platoon. He is an extreme. Oh, he cannot hit lefties. I mean, I think at he, all. his first year, 
He had zero home runs against lefties, and also no, they, no. they barely they were he had zero hits. He had zero hits. <laughs> they didn't play because like, yeah. we already had like thirty six plate appearances. Like zero for twenty three or something like. But that. yeah, it was a uh, he's an extreme platoon player. Yeah, uh, so you know this as you said, this is where the numbers. And I'm not saying Kim is going to be an all star next year or anything like that, unless he is, and then I'm definitely saying that undervalued pitcher. I think this is an interesting name. Uh, three twenty nine expected weighted on base, so like league average three eighty six actual weighted on base, a six forty one ERA. Anibal Sanchez, who has in the past been a very successful pitcher. I think he led the AL in, in uh, ERA one year. Why do I like Anibal Sanchez? I think part of the outcome is, you know, the Tigers had the weakest defense in the American League. That certainly didn't help. But when you look a little deeper, obviously, we just said the quality of contact was about league average. 21.6% K rate. That was major league average. 6% walk rate. That was better than major league average. And uh, when he came back from the DL in August, he had one really bad start. Seven earned runs and four and two-thirds to Toronto. And then his final four starts of the season were really good. 23 innings, 274 ERA, a 31 to 7 strikeout to walk ratio. You can probably get him on a minor league deal, I would think after the year he's had. And that is a guy I would bet on. He's had history of success in the past, and the underlying metrics are a little bit better than the obviously brutal 641 ERA, which is what I think a lot of people will be looking at. Yeah, for sure. No, that's a, the, the Tigers had a weird year, and uh, there's some, some some things could get masked by the defense. Uh, and uh, I think that uh, he's exactly, maybe not him, maybe the, the, there's a step up from him, but he's exactly the kind of guy, it's like, I'd rather roll my dice, roll, roll the dice, bring in three guys like him than go and get Arietta. Yeah, I think I would. I think I would agree with that. Depending on what situation your team is in, um, we also always look at spin rate, right? And we know that uh, Charlie Morton, for example, the, the Astros liked his curveball spin, and they brought him in last year, and he was fantastic. So, if you want to bet on spin rate, Tyson Ross is an interesting name. I know Tyson Ross had a brutal year, and this is a good example that spin rate does not automatically make you successful in the same way that velocity does not automatically make you successful. But it's a tool that you have, and if you can get with the right pitching staff, with the right coach, maybe you can use that to your advantage. Tyson Ross's four-seamer was clocked at 2,557 RPM. That is the second highest among 223 starters who threw 104 seamers. That is a skill, right? And he's got to be able to use it. He's got to be able to stay healthy. That's always his issue. But he is a guy I could definitely see a, uh, a forward-facing analytical team bring in and say, we think we can maybe help you with this and mold you into, not a star, but a useful pitcher. I mean, with him, the issue at this point is just health. Um, he's just been able to stay healthy for about three seasons now. But there, he's shown in his career he can be an effective pitcher when he's healthy. Um, and he's, again, a, I mean, he's definitely much more of like a, a real, you know, sort of flyer. But he'll, he'll, he'll get a job. There will, there will be teams that want him. Also on that list, Mike Miner. And uh, Mike Miner is a little different than Ross in that Mike Miner actually had a fantastic season. I think he ended up as the closer uh, in Kansas City for a while. If you look at his four-seamer, it was actually higher than Tyson Ross's, 2,604 RPM. If you uh, look at all of the pitchers, starters, and relievers who threw 100 fastballs, 493 of them, that was the fourth highest. And obviously, he's already used that to good effect because he had a great season. He's a guy who's going to get, like, I don't know, three years and $35 million to be some teams. Not closer, I don't think, but get me five or six outs. Um, he'd fit pretty much anywhere. Yeah, if the uh, a good rule of thumb with four-seam spin rate is usually, like, for starting pitchers, 2,500 is, like, the, 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 the best of the best. That's where you see... Tyson Ross, Max Scherzer, Justin Verlander. Relievers, often you see a little bit higher because, you know, obviously they come in in short spurts and have a little more have a little more zip to it. Um, and that's where you get uh, minor up above 2,600 on average. And the final guy we want to talk about, and I'm going to talk about him in a little bit more depth because he's going to be my guy as the, season, as the offseason goes on. Uh, Tyler Chatwood, who pitched the Rockies, he has in a very high spin curveball. His curveball was clocked at 20, 29.72. 
RPM. That's the fourth highest among the 149 starters. Almost Lugo-esque. Almost Lugo-esque. And um, so Tyler Chatwell, let's talk about him for a second. He is my pick as the next Charlie Morton, right? Charlie Morton was a guy who kind of struggled for many years, came to Houston because they liked you know his underlying data. And obviously you saw Charlie Morton was a huge part of winning a World Series this year. Tyler Chatwood, 28 years old in December, career 431 ERA for those who care 40 wins and 46 losses. He's had two Tommy Johns, one way back in high school in, in 2006, one with the Rockies where he missed all of 2015. Missed some time with a calf injury this year. And, you know, his overall year this year, not terribly impressive, but let's look at some of the underlying data. As I said, extremely high curveball spin. He's also got a very high spin fastball as well. His uh, fastball was clocked at 2480. That is the 10th highest among those 223 who threw 100. So right away, you've got a high spin curveball and a high spin fastball. But we also know that he was pitching in Colorado, which means he didn't really want to use the curveball as much. And what's fascinating about that is when you look at his home road splits, they're huge. And then also briefly, as a reminder for the Charlie Morton experience, his four-seam velocity jumped from 93.9 to 95.3. That sounds like Charlie Morton to me. Uh, if you look at Tyler Chatwood's overall expected weighted on base as a starting pitcher, it was 329, a little bit higher than average, uh, 115th of 187 guys who faced 200, similar to Andrew Kashner, Nick Pavetta, and here it is, similar to Luis Perdomo. We did it. We got his name in this week. You know, basically the point is overall quality of contact. He was okay. Uh, he wasn't great. Now, obviously, if you look at home road splits when he pitched in Colorado, he was a mess. 6.01 ERA in 70 and a third innings. That's a 3.45 expected weighted on base and a 3.83 actual weighted on base. How bad is a 3.83? There were 347 pitchers who had 100 plate appearances at home. That was 323rd. It's similar to Bronson Arroyo and Bartolo Colon. Not exactly the names you want to be held up against in 2017. On the road, he was so much better. 3.49 ERA in 77 and a third innings. 3.07 expected weighted on base. A 3.04 actual weighted on base. Of the 317 pitchers who faced 100 plate appearances on the road, that was 89. That was similar to Granke. That was similar to Michael Fulmer. If his road 307 expected weighted on base was his full season mark, it would have been 57th of 187, similar to Sonny Gray, Garrett Cole, and Justin Verlander. I like Tyler Chatwood. Some team is going to get him out of Colorado. They're going to use his spin to good effect, and they're going to be very happy about it. Um, all right. You heard it here first, folks. <laughs> yeah, you have nothing else to add to the Tyler Chatwood experience. No, I mean, he's, <laughs> he, he's an interesting test case because obviously we've seen, you know, as as – the Rockies try different types of pitchers, you know, in Coors Field, and they've shown how certain types of pitchers can have success. Usually, ones that have dominant fastballs and dominant and exceptional fastball command. We've seen Jonathan Gray potentially develop into what could be like a true ace um, in Colorado, and we've seen in the past pitchers have elite seasons uh, there. Ubaldo Jimenez is, is the name that always comes to mind. He had like a true Cy Young caliber season pitching uh, in Coors is like a, a with a dominant two seam fastball, but Fastball curveball guys generally have not had as much success because the curveball is marginalized. Uh, so Chatwood is a good is a good test case as someone who can. Uh, did you happen to look up what, if, how much his curveball usage changes on road home versus road? Uh, I don't have it handy, but a little bit. I don't think as much as you would expect. And I understand that you don't want to be a totally different pitcher like from this start to the next. But I do think if he goes somewhere where it's not you know a mile high, some team will be able to say, "Hey, look, you can be a guy who can really use your curveball effectively." I mean, you could look at be you know go back to the Astros for a second, Lance McCullers who basically just now says, well, like, my curveball is my best pitch, so I'm just going to throw that the most. Yeah, I'm going to throw it 24 times in a row. <laughs> so, you know, maybe Ch- Tyler Chatward becomes one of these guys who suddenly is throwing his curveball 45 50% of the time as opposed to 20 25% of the time. Well, you heard it here first, the first week of November. I am on board the Tyler Chatwood train. Uh, that's our show for this week. And as a reminder, we are going to do the show each week for the entire offseason. Breaks around the holidays, of course. But keep tuning in because there's going to be so much to talk about. I'm Mike Petriello. This is Matt Myers. And this has been the MLB.com StackCast podcast. 
Hey, Rob Bradford here. You guys know I'm always up for a good MVP story, and one of the best stories is Wasabi Technology. Wasabi is the world's hottest cloud storage company, and it's become the go-to provider for professional and collegiate sports teams, including 20 major league baseball teams like the Red Sox and NHL teams like the Bruins and Vancouver Canucks. Even the Liverpool Football Club is getting in on Wasabi action. So why is Wasabi the MVP? Well, Wasabi was purpose-built to free businesses from skyrocketing storage costs and unpredictable transaction fees that the Amazons of the world are charging. In fact, Wasabi is up to 80% less than those hyperscalers and doesn't charge a cent for businesses to access their data. From Wasabi's AI-enabled intelligent media storage, Wasabi Air, to the industry's only cloud storage service with triple protection against cyber criminals, data deletion, and ransomware, Wasabi's taking the lead in driving innovation in data storage and helping sports teams to unleash the power of their data. Wasabi, another Boston-based championship team.